Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton. As the premier independent bookstore in the Hamptons, Bookhampton has a highly curated selection of books for readers of all ages, unique one-of-a-kind gifts, and exciting author events. Browse their fabulous staff suggestions online at bookhampton.com. I am so excited to be interviewing Natasha Solomons today. Natasha is a screenwriter and the best-selling author of four novels, including The House at Tinford and The Song of Hartgrove Hall. Her latest book, her fifth novel, House of Gold, is an epic drama about a supremely wealthy Jewish family tested in many ways by World War I. It has already been optioned for TV by Tall Stories, part of the UK team known for Downton Abbey, my favorite show. She currently lives in Dorset, England with her husband and two young children. So welcome, Natasha. Thanks so much for being on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you very much for having me. I feel like I'm on the phone with this major celebrity because I've been carrying around <laughs> House of Gold and telling everybody I know, like, I am reading the best book. <laughs> and now I get to talk to you, so I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, you so made my day. No, it's true. So can you tell listeners what House of Gold is about and how you came up with the idea for the book? Well, the Goldbaum family are the confidants of governments and kings. They have banking houses all across Europe. It's 1911. But despite that, nobody quite trusts them because they're Jewish. And for their own part, the Goldbaums realized that only family can be trusted. So Greta Goldbaum of the Vienna dynasty is being sent to London to marry her cousin Albert, a man who she's never met. And right from the start, it looks like the marriage is going to be a disaster because the couple loathe one another on sight. But soon they have larger problems because the Great War, the World War One, is looming. And so really, it's the story of the breakup of Europe, but told through the microcosm of the breakup of a single family. So it's a novel of power, of family, of war, of love and loss. Amazing. That's a great description. Okay. <laughs> this is like the, the Oscar for best picture. This is like how I would describe a movie like that. That's amazing. Oh. <laughs> and it came from inspiration from your own family, correct? Well, yeah, a little bit. The, on the stairs in my parents' house in Dorset, England, there's a portrait of one of my ancestors, a man called Jacob Schwarzschild. It's a little picture of a man wearing a black yarmulke and on his desk is a yellow bird, a golden oriole. And I must have walked past this picture, I don't know, a, a thousand times and never really noticed it. And one day I did see it in the way that you do. And I asked my parents about it and they said that this man, Jacob, he was a tutor and a neighbor in the Frankfurt ghetto to the Rothschild family. And I was sort of intrigued really that my family had sort of brushed so closely to this sort of incredibly famous European family and my family had left the Frankfurt ghetto at around the same time as the Rothschilds and the Rothschilds had gone on to sort of found these banking houses all across Europe and have this sort of meteoric rise and my family had not and yet somehow sort of following the journey of, of both families, one sort of incredibly sort of famous and, and, and my own moderately and moderately successful gave me that first kind of writer's tingle. But I think really what drew me to the story and wanting to write about the Goldbaums was the idea of writing about a family who was both 
powerful and yet vulnerable that although they have they're close to the kind of the wheels of of power and they're immeasurably wealthy because they're jewish they're other and they're set apart and they're not quite trusted and they always have this sense of unease and that i think was in fiction what to me made them so so fascinating and made me want to write about them it says i think on the back of the book somebody had compared this to a jewish downton abbey which is sort of what i was thinking i was almost disappointed someone had said that before me um on the back but it's true i mean the book is so the way the vivid imagery you use and the descriptions of this castle like living and it's just so clear and amazing and then you sprinkle that because then i I'm reading it and I'm imagining that I'm like in Downton Abbey as you're writing. And then, you know, I actually jumped, the, I think it was page 34 when, when Greta is congratulating her brother Otto on some scientific achievement and says Mazel Tov. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I like, I like jumped back. It was like all of a sudden my, my grandmother from Florida was like in your book. And I was like, what is going on? And for me, you know, being Jewish, like so much of this of the custom is just a part of me and my family. And then to have it shown in this, you know, sweeping war story across countries in this beautiful way was something I really hadn't seen before, which I think you did just so, so beautifully. You know, they have a broken mezuzah in some places and, you know, the, the whole thing with Shabbat, with Otto and Henri and Claire and Greta, which was amazing, and the skull cap under the military helm. I mean, all the little Yiddishisms. I just thought it was amazing to put that element into this context. Anyway, I thought it was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> um, oh, thank you. Do you think there are like other modern day sort of Goldbaums in Europe living like this? Or does it exist? Um, I don't think so much now. I think that sort of during the 19th century and the early 20th century, but I, I think that the, the First World War sort of marked the beginning of, of the end for them. I think that really the cost of the First World War, they had to sort of put so much money up really to lend it to the, to the governments to finance the First World War. And they made the decision really back in the 1890s, these kind of families, because the Goldbaums are modelled on the Rothschilds, the Sassoons, the Montefiores, the Goldsmiths, as well as many other of these sort of banking families. And they're different. They're the, the European banking families are different from the American banking families. And they think that they're sort of tremendously important and tremendously powerful until they kind of come into contact really with the American banking families and discover that really they are small fish compared to the kind of the vast ones of America. They're still hugely wealthy, but compared to those with sort of houses on Wall Street, they are small because they make the decision sort of in the 19th century that they're not going to invest in Wall Street, that, you know, America still Europe is going to be bigger and that decision really costs them it keeps them small small scale and so that when that when the war starts and they're having to sort of really bankroll the European governments and and the cost of the war is so enormous they never quite recover from the cost of that and so I think that even today yeah it's just the, the families are still rich because when you've been that wealthy that for a fortune to dwindle takes a hundred years, but it's smaller. I don't think their sort of family's quite this large now. So did you know all of this? Did you know all this World War I information and the banking? And like, did you happen to know this? Were you a history major or did you, I know you did a lot of research for this book. Did this all come up in your research or? Yeah, and it was all research that I had to do. I didn't know, you know, I I, I knew some tiny bits when I started and it was all, I did loads and loads of research which was so much fun. I love researching. So no, it was great. Usually when I start to research book, 
I sort of say to myself, I'm going to be you know, really diligent. I'm going to be really good. I'm not going to start writing until I've done you know, months of research. And then I get really excited and really carried away and I fall in love with my lead character. And then I start writing in this kind of you know, happy chaos of papers everywhere, books everywhere. And, and I write for a bit and then I have to stop because I have to sort of do a load more research. And it sort of all happens in this kind of happy muddle together. But this time um, I used the brain broken finger method because I was I was reading an email <laughs> on my phone from my US editor and I shut my finger in the car door oh, no. on the way back from the school run and yeah I broke my finger in a couple of places and I had to go for surgery and I thought it's fine oh. I've got 10 fingers so you know within one out of action I've got nine more I can absolutely type and it turned out that I really couldn't that it was because I touched type really fast and I just couldn't do it. Oh my goodness. It, when you're researching, do you know? Yeah, the, no, it, it was oh, different sorry, go ahead. for me. So being that sort of enforced reading and just writing notes and sort of not doing it in that sort of quite that sort of muddly way. So yeah, I think it, I think it worked quite well, but it did feel different. So maybe you have to do this from now on. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, it was way too sore. Not the finger. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I, I literally kind of, I walked into the studio where my, my husband was working and was kind of holding my finger and the kids were in the cast was trying really hard not to say bad words and saying, darling, I think you're going to have to take the kids out of the car. And it was kind of dripping blood. And he's saying, I'm, I'm just, oh, I'm busy. Man. Can I just finish the sentence? Because he was working. Like, no, no. You know, just because I'm not sort of swearing and shouting, I, I, you really need to take the kids out. <laughs> so no, I'm not doing Uh-oh. that again. <laughs> <laughs> when you started researching this book, for instance, did you know the plot? Did you know how you wanted the whole thing to unfold? And then you researched to sort of support that? Or did the plot unfold as you researched? I think that there was sort of certain, I had sort of scaffolding of ideas of where I, I sort of wanted it to go. And because it is a story that encompasses the Great War, there are sort of fixed points that one has to go to. So there's a certain sort of, there, there are dates like, you know, the, the, the assassination uh, in, in Sarajevo, these, 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 are, these are fixed things that cannot change. And there are these dates that you know are immovable. And then within those, there is sort of flexibility and there are other things that you're kind of, you're, you're building and moving around. And I knew that, for instance, I wanted to write a story about war, but without sort of goodies and baddies. I wanted to write with some of the war from the English point of view and some of it from the Austro-Hungarian point of view. And I wanted to write with, about a brother and sister who are incredibly close and to have some of it from her point of view and some of it from his and to show the sort of absurdity, really, of sort of the ideas of, of, of enemies. How could they be enemies when we've seen them sort of so close, that relationship between them? And so sort of having those ideas is then I needed to research what it was like to be a, sort of a, a Jewish officer in the Austro-Hungarian army, this very anti-Semitic army on the Eastern Front during the war. And that was really hard to find out because a lot of it was in Russian, a lot of it was in German, and mm-hmm. I didn't speak those languages. And so it was just trying to follow really that sort of that sugar trail to find out those things. And then it's also that sort of having that flexibility that when you sort of find something wonderful to kind of be able to work that into the story and not be so rigid and also allow when you're writing sort of character-driven 
drama to allow the characters to drive the story forward. Because I think there's always a danger that if it's sort of you're, you're plotting too hard, that somehow the plot is driving the characters and they feel rather that they are sort of, that they're almost the victims of the plot and world historical events are sort of dragging your characters along a little bit by their hair rather than that your characters are driving the story forward. And I, I very much want to sort of write stories where it feels that the, the characters are in charge of their own destinies rather than that they're being sort of carried forward and they're sort of rather you know, being buoyed along by history and feel a little bit incidental, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Your characters, all of them, however it is that you're doing this so beautifully, they're they're like real people. Like, I'm sad that the book is over, that I can't spend my evenings anymore with, you know, Greta and Albert. I mean, this paragraph you wrote about Albert to describe what he's like in just you know, I don't know, 10 lines or so, you talk about his regular habits, his aversion to being touched, his need for quiet and being alone, how he washes his loose change every night. Like you have all these details and you paint it all so vividly that you you figure out right away, like, okay, Albert's an introvert and, you know, how crazy that now he is forced to be sort of in the center of all this drama when what he probably wants to do is just be hidden all day. And I don't know, I feel like, how do you find these, I mean, they're not real people. Like, if it was someone real, I would have it. I would think it would be great being able to describe them and distill sort of who they are down to these few little features. But I feel like, how do you do that when the person is not even real? I don't know. They, they feel real to me, mm-hmm. and I think also because what I wanted to do is to show that in many ways, certainly at first, this is a very unnatural marriage. That Greta, she's doing her duty, but she is an extrovert. She is. She's sort of full of fun and chaos and rebellion, and she's being made to marry this man who is, he is sort of withdrawn and his passion is for these butterflies and these beetles and there there is a sort of a coolness to him and he's quite controlling and he is married to this, yeah, this sort of this woman who sort of fizzes around the, the edges and they are so wildly unsuited and unsuitable and yet somehow they have to find a way of making it work because this marriage isn't just about two individuals, it's about of two dynasties and and the stock exchange in Vienna and and in London rises on sort of their engagement announcement. It's sort of it's beyond just the two of them that it's 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 about a family. It's even about a country, and that at various points it's that their, their, their marriage has has wider implications, and even sort of Greta's body isn't her own. That she has to she's told at various points that sort of she has to that they they want her to get pregnant because it's important for for the company and for for the family because the investors need to know that there's there will be at some point an heir for this family business to go on and it's that sense that even her her body doesn't really belong to herself it belongs to sort of something greater than than herself and i think that i hope that sort of makes her also sort of despite the the material riches and the wealth that she's brought into there's something so awful about that that I think it makes her quite relatable and gives her a humanity and helps make her feel quite real Absolutely. I feel like also the way you have her turn to her garden and the way she transforms it and puts her own mark on it really you know illustrates who she becomes and her sort of role in the context of all these other you know how she makes it literally physically look different the way she is now that she's been 
immersed into this family. Is this also a research thing? Because I feel like you must be the best gardener in the entire world. No, my mum is a really keen gardener. She's a passionate gardener. And some of the research of the book was we went and we visited gardens. And my daughter at the time was really, really tiny. And we took her with us and we sort of went and did garden research. And I wanted the gardens of the Goldbaums to be sort of an expression of character. So initially in the ghetto, the the Jewish children were banned from the city parks and Jews weren't allowed to have gardens. The first thing the Goldbaums do when they have money is they want to create these amazing gardens for their chateaus and their castles. But the gardens that they create are these incredibly formal parterre gardens. And they're an expression both of power because they're so extravagant. They're sort of these series of greenhouses, these amazing glass houses are needed to constantly replace the, the very delicate bedding plants that are needed all the time. If there's a frost, they're destroyed, the plants are spoiled, so that fresh plants are brought out of the glass houses and immediately replanted by sort of the, the sort of dozens of gardeners whilst the family sleeps, so they're all fresh in the morning. But it's a very extravagant way of, of, of working. But then the gravel paths are paths to walk up and you know do deals as you walk along. They're not places to to relax or to find a hidden corner and read a book. And and Greta is given a garden or land for a garden by her mother-in-law as a wedding present. But she's rather worried that really it's a ruse to sort of clip and turn her into the perfect Goldbaum wife. And it's not what she wants to be. She doesn't want to be sort of clipped like some of the Goldbaum topiary. She wants to create a much more kind of laid back, relaxed place. She wants a garden of defiance with women gardeners where women wear trousers because you can't, you can't dig in a, in a corset. It's it's physically impossible. And um, she wants something with kind of wavering grasses and, and hidden spaces. But I'm not a great gardener at the moment. I have a lovely garden, but it's weed-filled. I think at this point in my life, I could either weed or I could edit. And at the moment, I need to edit rather than to weed. So I post pictures of my garden on Instagram, but you can't look too closely because there's, yeah, there's a lot of weeds at the edges. <laughs> Have you ever been interviewed by or spoken to an author named Dominique Browning? No. She writes all these gardening books. This is my dream now is to have a panel with like with you and her talking about gardening because she, she often reviews books about gardening. She has a book, I think it was called Slow Love. Anyway, it's really good, but <laughs> I don't know. I should... Maybe she'll make me ashamed of all my weeds. <laughs> so in the book, you have Greta meet Claire Henri's you know, mistress, basically. And she designs a dress at the beginning of the book for Greta that I feel like really sets the stage of you know, her character and who she becomes, sort of the boldness of of deviating from what the Baroness wants her to wear by wearing this sort of Klimt-esque inspired gown. So I think you should start a clothing line. This is my new thing. Like you need to start <laughs> selling these dresses or at least have one or a few of them made so that people can actually see because it sounds pretty gorgeous the way you, you described it. But the dresses it. are real because the Klimt's girlfriend is this this woman, Emily Flauget, and the dresses that he paints were, were real dresses designed by Flauget and she was this dress designer in Vienna. And so you can see the dresses. If you look at a Klimt painting, oh my goodness. the women that are wearing the dresses are, are, are dressed in the Flauget dresses. So if you look at a Klimt painting, those are what they're like. So the dresses that I describe, if you look at various of the Klimt paintings, you'll be able to see the dresses. Very, You're right. yeah. I thought you had made it all up. 
No, I haven't. They're taken from Klimt. Klimt, basically, he paints his girlfriend's dresses. That's what that's what he does. So, yeah, they're, they are amazing. These sort of very, yeah, no, they, look, they are quite something. Amazing. I don't know if any of the dresses have survived or whether they've just survived through the paintings, but they are remarkable sort of modern pieces of art. Well, I'm definitely going to go online now and <laughs> check those out. So I thought it was the sweetest thing in your acknowledgement section when you wrote, and lastly, thanks to my children. As far as they're concerned, I've been writing this book their whole lives. The tiny baby who was asleep in a Moses basket at my feet when I began is now running around with a dinosaur in each hand shouting, have you finished yet? And yes, darling, now I have. It was so great. <laughs> yeah, I just, I just get quite teary when I finish writing that bit. Yeah, (laughs) you could tell there's so much emotion. How, first of all, how long did it take you to write this book? And how did you balance sort of managing to write and research and produce this masterpiece with two small kids underfoot? This book definitely has taken me the longest out of anything I've ever written because I was supposed to be on maternity leave when I started it. I think my daughter was six weeks old when I started this book. And so I was sort of researching it and looking after her all in this kind of slight kind of hormonal blur, really, at the (laughs) beginning. And then I started, I guess, yeah, writing it kind of more intensely as she as she got bigger. So I think probably I was writing it over the course of a couple of years, but I probably I, I I I. I can't remember exactly, but I I wasn't sort of, I wasn't writing it sort of, you know, intensely all the time because I was, I was supposedly on maternity leave for some of it. But yeah, it, it was a muddle because sometimes when she was smaller, I would write while she was sleeping and she was literally kind of, yeah, asleep in the Moses basket or in her cot upstairs. And I would just, I would write in those stolen moments when she was asleep with the with the sort of baby monitor on and just kind of listen for that kind of cry and then literally kind of, you know, yeah, abandon the book and run back to her. And now it's a bit different when I write because she goes to preschool and my son's at school. But I have this sort of, once they're out of the house, the kind of internal clock starts and I know exactly how many kind of hours and minutes I've got till I have to go and pick them up or they, you know, they get delivered back to me. And I'm just kind of, super focused and get quite anxious about how much time I have to write whilst they're out of the house and then they come back and yeah and I stop writing often (laughs) mid-sentence which sometimes is a good thing because then it's easier to pick up the next day because you sort of yeah but it is it's some weeks you sort of feel like yeah this is fine I'm managing to to balance the kind of the work mothering and then other times it just feels awful and it's a complete mess and total chaos like there was a time a few weeks ago that um I just didn't have a handle on it I went up to London to meet my editor and it turned out that I was four days early for the meeting (laughs) and it was just kind of yeah I've just not I'm just I'm just not managing this at all and yes and it just gets all a bit chaotic. That makes me feel better as a mom. All the times I, you know, show up for birthday parties on the wrong day and <laughs> forget different activities. And, you know, like the chess teacher is at the front door and I'm like, oh, 
the kids aren't even here. <laughs> so I feel like the managing of the logistics of motherhood is quite daunting. It's like hard to keep it all straight. <laughs> yeah, there's some pictures on my Instagram feed that I just sent my husband to drop my daughter at preschool and it turned out the preschool was shut that day and like, I had no childcare organized. And I absolutely had to write, I had a deadline. So she just came and sat in my office to those like terrible pictures that she's just sitting on the little rocking chair in my room. And I'd like to say that she was drawing and painting and doing creative stuff. She wasn't. She was watching Paw Patrol. (laughs) (laughs) It was probably the best day of her life. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, some days you just do what you have to do. It was fine. After a while, my mom came and got her and they went to a cafe and she had a great time. But (laughs) some days you just kind of, you muddle through and it's just, yeah. It is. It's a balancing act, but balancing suggests that, that you, you have some measure of control and that there is a balance. And I don't think it is. You just, you flop. I flop from one side to the other. Yeah. Balance is yeah. probably not the best. <laughs> a bit of a misleading word. Yeah, there is no balance. <laughs> so House of Gold is going to be a TV series. Why not a movie? And how involved are you in this project? Well, I think because the book is sort of has this epic sweep, I think, to try and squeeze it into sort of two hours would be, I think, would be quite a mission. It feels like it, it will take longer than that to tell. So I think that a TV series would really give us a bit more time to tell the story. I think it, it, it will need that kind of six to eight hours to really tell it properly. So TV and that kind of lush sort of TV that we have at the moment with those budgets, it felt like a much more natural home than trying to kind of push this into sort of a, a period movie that just, I think it would be, I think it would be hard. Are you writing the scripts or the screenplay? Like how, how involved are you in that project? Well, my husband, I'm married to a screenwriter as well. So we've co-written the pilot together and and if the show gets made, we'll exec produce it as well. So I think we'll be, we'll be really involved at every step of the way, which will be really nice. Yeah, that's exciting. Do you have any stars on your wish list? I don't. I think it's because, because to me, the characters are so real. Like imagining kind of, I don't imagine Greta as somebody, like Greta's Greta. So yeah, I can't, (laughs) you know, if it gets to that stage, it'd be very exciting. But for the moment, sort of Greta in my head is she's herself. So I sort of don't picture her as, as a different person, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. So do you have any advice to aspiring authors out there? I think... I mean, if anything else can make you happy, do that because this is this is a crazy <laughs> job. Um, there is anything anything else you should you can possibly do that you think make you happy, do that. But if you're listening to this and thinking, nope, there's nothing else, then you have no choice. You're a writer anyway, so you're kind of stuck with it. And yeah, and you just kind of have to have to battle on through the through the lows and the odd high. And it's one of those things. And I think. The other thing to to bear in mind is that, yes, we're all sort of hoping to get published and the dream is to make a career of it. But I think even if it's not your career, writing can still give you great pleasure. And for every kid who plays the guitar, you don't say to them, right, well, if you can't make it as as a rock star, that's it put your guitar down and burn it. You say, well, you know, play with your friends, join a band, you can still enjoy it. And I think that even if the dream of publication doesn't happen, still write. It doesn't mean you don't have to do it. Still take great joy in it. And writing can still be part of your life and something that can give you and your friends great pleasure. And, you know, 
I don't know if that's useful advice, but... Um, I think that's totally useful advice. That's fantastic. We'll uh, start a writing band. <laughs> yeah, a writing band. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Actionable advice. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and moms don't have time to read books and all the listeners. And I really, truly, truly enjoyed your oh, book. And you. I'm just so really wish you all, all the best success and just know that at least for me, you've entertained me for like a solid, I don't know, 14 hours of reading. <laughs> so oh, thank you thank for that. You. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. All right. Take care. Thanks so much. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode has been sponsored by Bookhampton, bookhampton.com. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. <laughs>